Uh, the first part of the sermon is not going to appear to be about grace. The first part, first half, is going to appear to be about murder and a criminal seeking absolution. Before we dive into the sermon, let's uh, begin with prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how your word speaks to us. We ask now that your word would speak to us. We ask that you would speak to our hearts. We invite your presence in this room. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be active among us, each of us this morning, and that you would use your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart may be acceptable in your sight, and I pray that people may not see me, but they may see Christ. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Some of you may have heard of a man named Simon Wiesenthal. Simon Wiesenthal was a Jewish man. He was 32 years old at the beginning of the Second World War. He was captured by the Nazis. He was put into a prison camp in uh, Ukraine called Janoska, uh, just outside of Lvov, of Ukraine. One day, to his complete surprise, a nurse, a German nurse, came to him. He was on a work detail. He had a shovel or whatever he was doing. And a German nurse walked up to him and said, Are you Jewish? And he said, yes. And she said, then come with me. He had no idea what was going on. He began to follow her. She led him into a school building that was, former, I mean, that, that it was now being used as a, uh, as a German uh, uh, hospital, a, a field hospital for German soldiers. <clears throat> she took Wiesenthal into the, the room of a, of a wounded Nazi SS soldier named Karl. Carl was dying, and for whatever reason, he wanted to talk to a Jew before dying. Carl had been uh, part of a Nazi SS platoon that had, just outside of Lvov, Ukraine, had gathered two or three hundred Jewish Ukrainians together, put them into a wooden house, closed the doors, poured gasoline around the outside of the house, and lit the match and set it on fire. And now these terrified men, women, and children were in the house. They were, their clothes were catching They were dying. And they tried to jump out of windows or run out of doors, and the Nazis would use their Mauser rifles to pick them off as target practice. None of them survived. All were either burned to death or shot to death. And now this SS soldier, Carl, lay mortally wounded himself, a casualty, his body very badly burned. He was covered head to toe in, in hospital gauze. The only space that wasn't covered was his mouth where he could receive food and, and breathe. And although he was in pain and medicated, Carl was uh, still very conscious, very conscious of what he had done. He's tormented by the horrors in which he had, he had participated. So on his deathbed, this murderous man asked for a Jew to be brought into his, his room. He endeavored to confess his sins as, to a Jew and hopefully be freed from the mental and spiritual torment that he was experiencing before he died. Simon Wiesenthal, Wiesenthal, Jewish prisoner, was brought to him, and Carl, the SS man, soldier, told his story. We're going to come back to that story several times in this morning's meditation. Right now, I want to switch our minds. We're going to hold that in suspense. I want to switch our minds to our text for the morning. Our text is Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 26. We're going to have it on the screen, or you can follow along in your Bible. I'm going to read some of it and then make a couple of comments and then return to Simon Wiesenthal's story. Hear the word of God, Luke 23, 26 and following. As they led him, that is, as they led Christ away, 
They seized Simon from Cyrene. If you've ever wondered where Cyrene was, it's a city in northern Egypt uh, on the coast. Uh, Simon may have been black. We don't know. Uh, There was a Jewish colony there, but he was in Israel at that time. They seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way uh, in from the country, and they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, because the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never, never nursed. And then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and the hills cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Many theologians believe that Christ was referring in this moment to something that would happen approximately 37 years later, in the year 70 A.D., uh, Jew, uh, the Jewish people rose up against Rome uh, under the leadership of a group of men called zealots, and uh, they tried to overthrow the, 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 the Roman yoke. So Caesar sent uh, a, a general named Titus, and Titus was a merciless man. And he came into Israel, and he, he put Jerusalem under siege. And between the siege and the battle that followed, 1,100,000 Jews were killed, according to historians. A million point one people killed in the siege and battle. And hundreds of thousands were shipped off in boats around the Roman Empire and sold as slaves. That's why there's Jews all throughout Europe, because they got shot out of Israel at that moment. Three years later, the zealots tried it again. And they had, a, they had a fight up on a place that some of you may have been to, a place called Masada. And on that battle, the Roman army surrounded the hill. There was no escape. And finally, every man, woman, and child in that fortress committed suicide. And that was the end of the zealot uprising. And Israel ceased to exist as a nation at that moment in history to be, to be reestablished in 1948. Back to Scripture, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The older I get, and I think the same thing is true of you, the, the older you get, the more you realize just how really difficult it is to truly forgive somebody that has really wounded you. I mean somebody that really, the scar went deep. If you have truly forgiven the person who wounded you, you also know how healing and freeing it can be. In this extraordinary situation, as Christ was stretched out and being crucified with with nails being driven into his body, he prayed for the people that were driving the nails into his body. He interceded for them. He interceded on behalf of his killers, praying to God and saying, Father, they they don't know what they're doing. I want you to watch for that word intercede as we go on in this uh, morning's uh, meditation. Now, as you form a mental picture of Christ being stretched out and being hammered onto that cross with nails, what perpetrators of pain in your life come to mind? Who has really driven nails into you? Who has really hurt you? Perhaps somebody slandered you badly. Perhaps somebody betrayed you. Have you ever been betrayed? It's a bitter pill. Perhaps somebody seriously harmed a member of your family 
or ruined your reputation or, or perhaps got in the way of your career advancement. As God brings this person to mind, you know how difficult it is to forgive. This is not a light-duty exercise. I think this is one of the hardest spiritual tasks that we're called to. Have you ever tried to pray to God and say, Father, forgive them. They didn't know what they were doing. In your mind, you're thinking, they knew exactly what they were doing, and they did it intentionally to hurt me. So I'm going to pray for them. Moving along with Scripture, the people stood watching, and the rulers sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians over in Iran and Iraq, okay? That's where it came from. But the Romans took it and perfected it. They used it only to execute criminals that were non-Roman. They would not execute a Roman through crucifixion because it was just too brutal. It was horrible. But they crucified thousands upon thousands of people in Rome, and they used it not only as a means of execution, they used it as a means of intimidation to create terror in order to control the populace. And they often hung a sign at the top of the cross that would, that would articulate the person's crime. They didn't always do this, but they very often did. And in Christ's case, the sign said, this is the king of the Jews. This was really a slap against the Jewish people that were crucifying him. It was Romans saying, we're in charge around here. This is your king. We're killing him. And you can't do a thing about it. This was, this was a bitter pill for the, for the Jewish people. And it was a, it was a sardonic uh, situation in terms of who Christ really was and so forth. But the point here is that Christ died as a criminal. Christ died as a criminal. The Jewish rulers identified his crime as being blasphemy, and blasphemy against God was punishable in that culture by death. They usually did it by stoning, but Rome had taken away Israel's right to execute people, and so they crucified him. Now, the Romans reluctantly carried out the sentence. Tom talked about that a little bit last week. Pilate was not excited about crucifying Christ. He tried to get out of it. And maybe you'll hear more about it as we go through the Easter meditations. Uh, But according to Scripture, and this is something I'm going to build on now, according to Scripture, Jesus Christ died as what we call a substitutionary atonement. I'm going to build on that term, help you understand a little bit about what that means for the remainder of this morning's meditation. But now let's go back to Scripture. And this is something I'm going to build on now. According to Scripture, Jesus Christ died as what we call a substitutionary atonement. I'm going to build on that term, help you understand a little bit about what that means for the remainder of this morning's meditation. But now, let's go back for a moment to Simon Wiesenthal, the Jewish Jewish man in the Nazi prisoner's camp. Carl, you recall, had participated in the murder of two or three hundred innocent Jewish people in Ukraine. Um, and he had just confessed his monstrous crime to Simon, he did so in hopes of perhaps some way receiving absolution for his crimes before he died. So he could die in peace. Wiesenthal didn't offer absolution. Simon listened to the story, and then he stood, he turned his back, and he walked out of the room. And before we get too judgmental about him, I would ask you, why not? Why not stand and walk out of the room 
of a person like Carl. This SS Nazi was as guilty as sin. I'm going to say he was as guilty as hell itself. Carl deserved no absolution. He deserved a painful death, and he deserved to stand in front of an angry God who said, you did what to 300 people? You go to hell. That's what he deserved. Carl the Nazi may have just been looking for cheap grace, you know, an easy way to assuage his conscience so he wouldn't feel quite so bad about things. We, we Christians kind of do that from time to time. In fact, a lot of us do it. We accept Christ into our life. Had a woman come forward after the last service. She said, you know, I've just realized there's a difference between accepting Christ as my Savior and having him as my Lord. And she said, uh, or we talked about that a little bit. A lot of people say, yes, Jesus, come in my life, and we, you know, we kind of say the magic formula, whatever we call it, but then nothing changes. We just go through life the same. We don't change our values. We don't change the way that we treat people. We don't change anything about ourselves. That's cheap grace. Or maybe Simon was honestly trying to confess before dying, but it didn't matter because Wiesenthal left him alone with his sin to die bandaged up in a prison, I mean, in a, in a hospital, in a school that was a hospital. Now, here's a question for you. What would you have done? What would you have done had it been your mother and your father, or maybe your children, or your grandparents, or other loved ones in that house that they burned, and then they shot people running out of it with clothes on fire? Would you have forgiven? What would you have done? Could you have forgiven Carl? There's two questions that hover around the issue of forgiveness, and they are thorny questions. And as a pastor, I've dealt with these questions hundreds of times in in people's lives as they've come into my office. First, even if you did forgive, exactly what would your forgiveness mean? If you would forgive Carl, what would your forgiveness mean? Because the people that he offended, the people that he killed are dead. So what does your forgiveness mean? Logically, the only people that could truly offer forgiveness were the ones that Carl had murdered. How do you forgive even the most contrite sinner that's done something like that? Second question. Oh, this is the question, incidentally. The first question is the question that is haunting the Middle East right now. Jews look at Arabs and they say, how can we forgive them after these hundreds of years of them killing us and blowing themselves up and you know, doing all this stuff? What would the death of my father mean if I forgave those, those people? They've got, they're hung up on. The Arabs look over at the Jews and they say, you invaded our pro- you you blew buildings apart, you've killed lots of our people. What would my forgiveness mean for the death of my father? Okay, what does forgiveness mean and who can forgive? Second thing comes even closer to home in some of our lives, the second haunting question hovers around the issue of forgiveness, whether Simon's forgiveness might mean that Carl was thereby somehow relieved of his responsibility for what he did. If Simon were to say, okay, I forgive you, does that mean that Carl walks away scot-free? And the deeper you have been wounded, you know the more that problem or that question is a problem in your life. If Simon forgave Carl, would God then also forgive Carl? And would Carl walk away scot-free? The spiritual temptation that all of us face, and this is, a, this is a heavy one, I've faced this stuff. The spiritual temptation we all face when we face the carls of our life is to turn our back on them and to walk away and to leave them to deal with an angry God and hope that he does punish them because they deserve punishment and let them face God alone and be condemned to hell. 
35 years later, after the end of the Second World War, Simon Wiesenthal was still struggling with the implications of Carl's question to him, of Carl's, uh, Carl's request, implications of the limits and the possibilities of, of forgiveness. And so Simon Wiesenthal, Jewish prisoner, now free, now living in, I don't know where, in the United States, I think, maybe in Israel. Simon wrote this question to all of the top religious leaders of the world, to Jewish leaders, to Christian leaders, to Islamic leaders, to Buddhist leaders. His question was, what would you have done? According to the tenets of your faith, what would you have done? And then he wrote a book. If you haven't read this book, you should. It's a, it's a fast read. It's called The Sunflower written by Simon Wiesenthal, I highly recommend. It's the best, the best study on the issue of forgiveness that I've ever read. Now let's step away from Carl and Simon for a moment again. Let's go to the Old Testament. Look at the Old Testament solution that God had provided. In the Old Testament, the main offering for, for dealing with sin was called a guilt offering. Sometimes it was called the trespass offering, or sometimes it was called a reparation offering. And it was an offering that people would give when they had really they had really hurt somebody. They had done something that was really destructive in a relationship with somebody, somebody else. The guilt offering was a two-part deal. The first thing that had to happen was you had to take a ram, a faultless lamb, a ram, out of your flock, or if you didn't have a flock, you had to go buy one, and you had to bring it to the temple and offer it to a priest, and the priest then would sacrifice that ram. It cost you something. Whatever the, what, I don't know what the value of a ram was in that culture, but it, it couldn't have been cheap. And you had to offer a ram as a sacrifice for it. The ram was a stand-in or a substitute for the punishment that you were supposed to receive as a result of what you had done to offend or to harm somebody else. Hence the term substitutionary atonement. The ram was a substitute for your sin. The second piece of, of the guilt offering was following the sacrifice of the ram. The sinner had to repay the debt that he had caused or, the, or, the, or the, the financial obligation that he had incurred with somebody else, plus 20%. Thereafter, the sinner was forgiven. The sacrifice didn't remove the wrong, but it compensated for it. But a problem remained. The problem was some sins are too awful to compensate for. How do you compensate for murder? What's the value of a life plus 20%? How do you compensate for rape? How do you compensate for child abuse? How do you compensate for trashing somebody's reputation in a community or in a, in a corporation or an academic institution? How do you make reparation to the children of a workaholic father or mother? How do you make reparation for a lifetime of alcohol abuse or a lifetime of uh, sex? How do you compensate for trashing somebody's reputation in a community or in a, in, in a state, for trashing somebody's reputation in a community or in a, in, in a corporation or an academic institution? How do you make reparation to the children of a workaholic father or mother? How do you make reparation for a lifetime of alcohol abuse or a lifetime of uh, sexual infidelity? How do, you, how do you compensate for that, even according to the Old Testament system, the sacrificial system? And the, the thorny question remains, who can forgive other than the people whose lives were ruined by these actions? Is it enough to say, and this is what some people do, 
They say, well, you know, God forgives me, and so that's enough. I'm, for, I'm forgiven, I accept the shed blood of Christ, and so we walk away from the responsibility. Years ago, I was mulling this over. I, I've been a pastor for 35 years, and I was preaching on, uh, I don't know what, what subject, and I was mulling this over, and I thought, man, I, this Old Testament system, I understand it. I've studied it theologically, but I want to ask a Jewish rabbi, what, what's your interpretation of the, of, the, of the sacrificial system and God's, God's absolution and so forth? So I called a friend in La Crosse, Rabbi Prombaum, and um, he, uh, I asked his opinion. His response was that it is not within God's purpose to forgive me for my sins against other people. That is my responsibility. If I have sinned against a person over here, then it's my responsibility to go to that person and to ask their forgiveness and to make reparation and to get it right. And this rabbi said, God will not forgive unless I first seek reconciliation, and offer reparation to the person that I've harmed. And in severe cases, this rabbi said, he said, uh, cases like murder or like rape or like very serious crimes, he said, it'll take a lifetime of living a very good life, a very moral life on a very high plane and treating everybody with enormous dignity and respect and doing everything I can to help the poor and being a a model citizen and so forth. And then perhaps, perhaps God may forgive me. Now here's the problem. Who could forgive Carl for what he had done? For murdering those hundreds of innocent and terrified people. Now I want to bring the question to Kirkwood. Who can forgive you for the sins that you have committed against other people that have really hurt other people? Who can forgive you? And what does it mean to be forgiven? Well, Carl the Nazi criminal was stuck in his sin. Simon Wiesenthal didn't have the ability to forgive Carl. But you know what? Simon didn't have the desire to forgive him either. He was not a willing forgiver of Nazis. He lost his entire family, all of his blood relatives, wiped out by the Nazis. In fact, Simon went on after the war to become the world's number one Nazi hunter. He found Nazis where they were hiding all over the place. He was responsible for the arrest and conviction of 1,100 Nazi criminals of war, including, if you know anything about Nazi history, including Adolf Eichmann. That's a huge name for those of you that have studied the Second World War. By contrast, and I really want you to hear this now, by contrast, Christ prayed for his killers even as they were murdering him. What a huge contrast this presents. Christ did for us what Carl, the dying Nazi, needed for Simon, the Jew, to do for him. He needed, Carl needed, needed Simon to swip, swat, uh, sw- switch places, with, trade places with him, and he would become the one whose body is oozing blood and seeps us, and he's the one who's dying and wrapped in gauze. And then he needed to, for him to die for his crimes, and even then, that would not atone for what Carl had done participated in the death of two or 300 people. This is the same thing that we need in relation to God against whom we have sinned. And as amazing as it sounds, that's exactly what God did for us. It's exactly what God did for us.
Jesus Christ, the criminal, was sinless, and yet God made him into sin. Paul said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Kind of blows you away. That's what the stand-in ram was all about in the guilt offering. The ram became sin on behalf of the, of the sinner. The priest would slit the ram's throat and put a basin underneath that ram as it was dying. And then he would take that basin over to the altar, and he would throw that blood on the altar. And that was a symbolic moment of saying the, the, the sin and the guilt and the responsibility are being put on the altar. And someday the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to do that for the world. That's what the sacrificial system was about. In the same way, Christ became the stand-in ram for us. Although we are all sinful, Christ actually became sin. He became sin as he poured out his blood for us. And we, in turn, become the righteousness of God. You are the righteousness of God. Let's, I want you to bow your heads for a second. I want you to say, repeat after me. I'm going to ask you to say this softly and think about it as you say it. This is your, your story. I want you to repeat after me. I am as guilty as hell itself. But through Christ, I am an example of the righteousness of God, hell itself. But through Christ, I am an example of the righteousness of God. That, my friends, is your personal definition of grace. You want to know what grace is? You just said it. Now, I don't know about you, but biblical prophecy blows me away. I, I'm, I'm, I'm always amazed. I used to read through the Bible once a year. I haven't done that for two, three years lately. But uh, as I would read through the prophetic section, it was just like, holy cow, how did God do this? How did you know that? Book of Isaiah is so incredible. I used to read, I still read through Isaiah before, just before Christmas. It's a great, great book to read. But uh, one of the pieces in Isaiah was written about the crucifixion of Christ and the purpose of the crucifixion. It didn't articulate the crucifixion, but it but articulates the purpose of Christ. Mike read it last week. I'm going to read it again because it's just amazing. I, uh, from Isaiah 53, it says, It was our grief he bore, our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins, but he was wounded and, and bruised for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was lashed and we are healed. We, every one of us, have strayed away like sheep. We, who left God's paths to follow our own. Yet God laid on him the guilt and sins of every one of us. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he never said a word. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before shears is dumb, so he stood silent before the ones condemning him. From prison and trial, they led him away to his death. But who among the people that day realized it was their sins that he was dying for, that he was suffering their punishment? He was buried like a criminal, but he had done no wrong and had never spoken an evil word. He was counted as a sinner, and yet he bore the sins of many, and he pled with them 
Pardon me, he pled with God for sinners. That is so powerful. He pled with God for sinners. I'm going to come back to that thought again. That's an amazing prophecy about what Christ was going to suffer and the purpose of his crucifixion. But fulfilled prophecy is only part of what makes the completed work of Christ so amazing. Another amazing fact of Christ's finished work is that he now intercedes for us. Isaiah said it. He intercedes on our behalf. Paul wrote this. He said, Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You know what this means? Right now, Christ is at the right hand of God and saying, Father, I see John Splinter. I know that he's a rotten guy. I know that he's full of sin. I know all the stuff that he's done, but he didn't know what he was doing. Please forgive him. I forgive him, so you forgive him too. Now put your name in that. Christ intercedes for you. Now the danger of listening to preaching is that it always we can kind of keep it out there. You know, if we if we kind of close our mind or think about something else, we can kind of keep it out there. But now I want to take all the stuff that we've talked about this morning and I want to put it on your lap. I want to put it right where you are. I'm going to end with two thoughts. First, let's go back to the story of Simon Wiesenthal and talk about God's grace. Who do you think needed grace in that situation? Well, obviously, Carl needed grace. Obviously, the people that were dying in, the, in that fiery inferno and being shot to death, they needed grace. But you know what? Simon Wiesenthal needed grace because for the rest of his life, he was tormented about what had happened to himself and his relatives. Yes, he did put 1,100 former Nazis into prison. And yes, Adolf Eichmann was hanged, and he deserved to be hanged. But Simon had experienced some horrendous losses in the death of his entire family and in the death of his loved ones. And this experience was so terrible that it literally ate up the rest of his life. It ate him up every morning when he got up and every night when he went to bed. It was on his heart and his mind. So how does God's grace go about making up for those kind of losses in your life? How can God's grace clean up the blood and the sepsis that that oozes from the wounds of your life? Again, Scripture provides the answer, and this answer is only possible because of what Jesus the criminal accomplished for us in his substitutionary atonement. There's a verse, and this verse, this is one of those verses that is oh so easy for people to recite when they haven't suffered. But this is a hard verse for people to really believe when they have suffered. And you'll know what I'm talking about when I read it. But it's true for both people that haven't suffered and for those who really have. Here's the promise from Scripture. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That promise is the only thing that could possibly offer any hope and any purpose to the wounds and the, and the scars that have been injected into our lives through the enemy of God. But because of Christ's substitutionary atonement, God is able to transform even the most wretched aspects of your life and to, and to make them into things that bring glory to God and actually bring healing to you as a person. As a, as a pastor, I've seen this happen perhaps thousands of times now. <clears throat> I've seen when 
Alcoholics, whom God gets a hold of, become people that work with Al-Anon or Alcoholics Anonymous, and they get their arm around the shoulder of somebody else that's struggling with booze, and they say, let me walk with you now for a while because I know how to get out of this hell, and I will walk with you. I've seen it in the lives of people that have been divorced and go through the awfulness of divorce and then go back and they say, I will help with divorce recovery. I will put my arm around somebody going through it and I will walk with them and I will use the hell of my life to become the pathway for their life. I've seen it in the lives of people that have been abused as children as they go back, as God heals them and they go back and they put their arm around another person that was abused and they say, I've suffered as you have suffered. There is hope. Walk with me and I will lead you. I will lead you to Jesus. There's so many, so many applications of this principle of the wounded healer. I've seen it in the lives of people that have had abortions, that have put their arms around other people that have just had abortions and said, okay, let's walk together for a while and let's pray about this. And you, can, you can't name an area where Satan pounds us into the ground or drives those spikes into us that Jesus is unable to come back and say, let me take that now and bring glory to me and healing for you the one who sits at God's right hand, intercedes for us. Final thought. I said earlier that the spiritual temptation when we face the issue of forgiveness is to uh, do what Simon did, to turn our backs and to walk away with our head in the air and to hope that God punishes the person that hurt us, to leave them to, to God alone to be condemned. So here's my parting question to you today. First of all, Who is Carl in your life? The older you are, the more likely you've got one. Who's Carl in your life? Next question. How would Jesus handle your Carl? Last question. How would Jesus want you to handle your Carl? Well, our text today has been Luke 23, 26 and following the story of Christ's journey toward Golgotha. It's a powerful story, but the power behind the story is a verse that I read. Let me read it again. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, because of Jesus Christ becoming God's stand-in sacrifice on your behalf, your guilt offering, although you are as guilty as all, we all are as guilty as hell itself, you are the righteousness of God. Your examples of his righteousness. 